Hi guys, Journeys of Faith is back and I'm so excited because I have been invited to my very first Shabbat dinner. That invitation coming from this week's guest, Rabbi Shmuley. Rabbi Shmuley has been called America's Rabbi. On this episode, we're going to talk to him about the childhood event that happened that really gave him the desire to become a rabbi, his true thoughts on Jesus, and his unexpected partnership with none other than Pamela Anderson. Here's Rabbi Shmuley on Journeys of Faith. And I'm honored to have Rabbi Shmuley in the studio right now. Rabbi Shmuley, you're called America's Rabbi. It's so great to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I've actually been upgraded since that title. I'm now like kind of the Galaxy's Rabbi. (laughs) I figure if you're giving yourself a title anyway, you may as well go global. I love it. Universal. Exactly. The Universal (laughs) Galaxy Rabbi is here in the house. Um, So Rabbi Shmuley, I want to ask you, First of all, you studied at seminary in L.A., a seminary in Israel, at the Rabbinical College of Sydney in Australia. You studied a long time to become a rabbi. Why did you become a rabbi? Because you became a rabbi at a pretty young age. I think the main reason I became a rabbi, and it's not in my bloodline. My father's not a rabbi. My brothers are not rabbis. I don't really know of rabbis who are in our family. But my parents divorced when I was a boy. And it really shook me. I know that divorce today is very commonplace and uh, it wouldn't bat an eyelash. It's it's kind of uh, the norm. But for me, it wasn't. I I didn't understand how the two people whose love for one another actually was responsible for my existence can suddenly um, separate. And it it, it caused a crisis. I wanted to know whether the world is comprised of parts that ultimately cohere or whether the world is comprised of incongruent pieces, if the world is fundamentally broken, shattered at its nuclear core. And so I searched for a way to bring things together, and I felt that religion was that way. I was raised a modern Orthodox Jew, but in Judaism, in its, in its global vision of creating a, a, a global faith community and a community of communities, I thought I might find the secret to also keep a man and a woman happily under the same roof for the duration of their lives. So I thought a rabbi was someone who brought healing. So from the age of about 14, 15, I decided to become a rabbi already. So you decided to become a rabbi basically out of your own pain that you were experiencing as a child in many senses. You wanted to heal other relationships. And the kind of pain that never really ends. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I was, you know, my father lives in L.A., my mother lives in Miami. And uh, divorce never ends. Yeah. Um, thank God my parents are alive. So for Passover, for example, where do we where – do, who do we visit? Do we go to my father? Do we go to my mother? You don't want to offend this parent, that parent. You also become kind of Henry Kissinger at an early age. You have to be a world-class diplomat. You have to – from an early age, you want to make sure that your mother's loneliness and pain uh, is assuaged in some way. You have to be careful about what you say about one parent to the other. So you're having to grow up way too fast and you're also – having to uh, ponder questions that children should not have to think about, existential questions. I remember when I went to sleepaway camp for the first time, I was eight or nine, and uh, I thought it was normal to put your head on a pillow as a kid and mm-hmm. just not be able to sleep and just think. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I found out in this bunk with nine other kids that they just put their you know, lights out. The head, the head counselor would threaten to dock you from some activity if you didn't all go to sleep or if you tried to raid the bunk next door. So they put their heads on a pillow and they were out like a light. And I would just sit there, what? Um, I have no one to talk to mm-hmm. because I was already thinking about these deep issues. And it's a, it's a blessing that, and a curse. Was that rooted in anxiety at all? Or were you, have you, you said you've just always kind of been an existential thinker. No, I think it was rooted in this constant quest for answers. Mm. I was looking for answers. Um, I think when you are raised in an 
in, a, in, a, in an environment which is unstable. And uh, divorce can be very unstable. And my parents, it's not as if they had an amicable divorce. There was nothing amicable, amicable about it. It doesn't remain amicable till today. Mm-hmm. So that instability forces – you internalize some of that instability and it forces you kind of to think and to ponder. So I've spent my life uh, – I mean if you look at m- my body of work, whether it's uh, books on sexuality and relationships or, or books on parenting or whether it's books on Judaism and theology or whether it's um, my, the 11 years I spent as rabbi at Oxford University where I really created uh, a community that was a minority Jewish and the vast majority were not Jewish of every faith or no faith – I've always been trying to bring people together of divergent thoughts and ideas. It's especially difficult in America today. You know, I've never seen the country as divided. Mm-hmm. And I never – to be honest, when I was a boy and when I was at Oxford, I saw ethnic divisions. I saw racial divisions. I saw religious divisions. I never could have predicted, I don't think, that the principal divisions would become political. Right. That uh, today atheists and uh, I don't know uh, – evangelical Christians who agree on a Republican platform will find complete kinship. And yet, I don't know, mainline Protestant denominations who are Democrats will find nothing in common with evangelicals and they'll be political opponents. So I couldn't have predicted that. But I remain on this quest amidst my own strong opinions on various subjects to try to bring unity mm-hmm. and healing. Yeah. You've received a lot of criticism, too, because you're this connector in in many regards. You know, the, some of the books that you've written, Kosher Jesus and on lust, uh, kosher sex. So, and I want to dig into those in a little bit, but uh, rewind just a second. You said that you, you were on this quest, even as a young child, to get those questions answered. So how did your Jewish faith provide those answers? Right. In other words, I was on a quest with the model of the rabbi as healer. Mm-hmm. That, 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 in other Is words, that what rabbi means, healer? Rabbi means teacher. Okay. But for me, it was, it was the healing component. It was this, uh, the rabbi was the bridge who brought people together. He, he found an overarching message. He found the common human threads that could somehow sew people together. Take sex, for example, like my book, Kosher mm-hmm. Sex. The Catholic Church believes that sex is procreational. Uh, the secular world believes that sex is recreational. And yet the book of Genesis, Judaism says, Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his mother, leave his father. He shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a fascinating idea that sex is a motion which is meant to call forth uh, much deeper emotions. Now, that's just one facet of life, albeit a, a very central and important facet mm-hmm. of life. But but the same thing can be true of prayer. In Hebrew, it's It's a verse from the book of Isaiah, and it means that my house, God says, will become a house of prayer for all nations. Prayer need not divide. We can sometimes have a, have a common prayer. There are things that we know unite people. Usually, they're tragic in nature. 9-11 will unite us. Um, people will come to a house of grief in a local community if, I don't know, a child dies or something like that, God mm-hmm. forbid. But it's very rare. And sometimes joy will also unite us. But by and large, there isn't a lot to, left to unite us. And religion has been one of the most divisive things of, of, of all. Some of the greatest conflicts have always been fought by religion and over ideologies. I mean, God Almighty, there were hundreds of years of Christian wars over a tiny little facet about the divinity of Jesus. Was Jesus all divine? Was Jesus all human? Was he all both? You know, it took the Council of Nicaea to uh, to try to reconcile a lot of these things. And even then, they weren't fully reconciled. And yet, and yet, I still believe that faith is the best way to unite people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes America such a, a unique country. I've lived all over the world. I was the rabbi at Oxford. As you said, I was in Australia. I lived in Israel. Um, there was one point in my life for almost 16 years I was living abroad, uh, serving as, as rabbi in various places. 
And I saw that America really is a unique country in that this idea of God bless America, Mm -hmm. that Americans do look to God on our money and and God as part of the political process and and God blessing our troops. And if you go to Western Europe, which is the cradle of Christian civilization, that's really been lost. God is not really discussed in public life. So I still believe that faith is the best way by which to unify people. I believe that wholeheartedly as well. And speaking of faith there, you look at different religions in Christianity. There are different sects and denominations and the same with Islam. You are an Orthodox Jew and there are many different, I guess you could say, denominations of Judaism. So what exactly does it mean to be an Orthodox Jew and how how does that fall in the spectrum of the other denominations in Judaism? Well, I think it's important to remember that for all religions, denominations will come down to one simple idea. How do you interpret the primary biblical text of that faith? So, for mm-hmm. example, Christianity has the New Testament and, 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 and the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, but primarily the New Testament. And, of course, Islam has the Quran. Uh, you might have uh, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. So if things are written so clearly, why is there more than one denomination? If you have Jesus' utterances and teachings in the New Testament, if you have a Sermon on the Mount mm-hmm. in the book of Matthew, why are there hundreds of Christian denominations? Interpretations. Exactly. So we Jews actually had both. We had a written law that we call the Torah, and then we had the oral interpretation, the accepted oral interpretation for more for two and a half thousand years that we call the Mishnah or the Talmud. And that's why there was really only one Jewish denomination up until modern times. Today we have three, essentially three denominations, because two of the denominations, um, conservative Judaism and which is not political, conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism decided that they wanted to take more responsibility for interpreting the text and not be tied just to the ancient tradition of interpretation. So Orthodox Judaism is the part of Judaism that says that the biblical text that we have, the five books of Moses, the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Micah, that all of this was given with a code of interpretation. So there's no ambiguity. Okay. I'll give you an example. Uh, Let's take uh, the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Bible says it over and over again. There's one problem. What's work? Mm-hmm. Is what we're doing now work? Let's say uh, if we're being paid, is it work? If we're not being paid, is it not work? Uh, so so the, the Talmud, the oral interpretation, gives a very specific definition of work. And it basically says that work is anything creative that leaves a permanent mark on the world, like cooking. That's considered work because if I make soup, I've taken two things. They've dissolved into one another and now it's made kind of a permanent mark. I can't undo it. Mm -hmm. And yet if I move a couch up and down my stairway the entire Sabbath day and I'm drenched in sweat, I have done no work whatsoever according Mm -hmm. to biblical law because I've changed nothing. There has to be something transformative. So that's orthodoxy where the biblical text has a specific interpretation. So we Orthodox Jews, we don't use electricity on the Sabbath. People know that we don't drive on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Uh, we keep very strict laws, of dietary laws of kosher food, which involves uh, only uh, slaughtering animals in a way that severs the, the carotid artery so there's no pain to the animal. I could go on. Other denominations of Judaism may not emphasize the same level of, of ritual observance. So Orthodoxy is probably the most demanding in terms of ritual demands. And then you have two other denominations, conservative and reform. Sunset. On Friday until sunset on Saturday is your Sabbath, and you are completely shut down. No phones, no electricity. No texts, no videos. Yeah, uh, we don't turn on lights. Uh, Lights can be on, of course. We just don't turn them on because, again, 
work is defined as anything creative that leaves a permanent mark. Mm. So electricity can't be used because electricity closes a circuit. So you're building something. You're building a circuit. We can't build. You also can't destroy on the Sabbath. So there's very specific laws about what we can and cannot do. It sounds restrictive, but it's actually quite liberating, especially mm-hmm. in an in a, in electronically dominated age where if someone sends you a text, they expect an, an answer back almost immediately. And uh, there was a famous modern rabbi named Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who explained quite beautifully that the, that the Sabbath is all about the constant battle between the urgent and the important, that we all know it's important, like having dinner with our kids, and yet we'll take phone calls during dinner. The problem is that after a while, the urgent begins to supersede the important and the important is just tread on. So the Sabbath is 25 hours where there's only the important and there's nothing urgent. I remember Ben Shapiro, who I had on the show season one, said that Shabbat was basically forced family time, but in the best possible way because it just forces you to turn everything else off and turn on that time with your family and reconnect. Forced family time or or, uh, community time. Yeah. I would actually not use the word forced insofar as in our religion, freedom of choice is so central more than any Mm -hmm. other religion. We actually believe that people have to do things out of moral volition and exercise uh, free choice, free will. Having said that— But it is a command. It's it's a command, but you don't have to keep it. I mean, they're they're all commands. We Mm -hmm. live in a free society. What's going to happen? God's not going to zap you with electricity. I mean— How do you know? uh, (laughs) Well, let's not test it. Um, it's, but it's also a time of deep introspection. I, I think that one of the biggest problems of the modern world, and going back to my childhood, which you raised before, my favorite subject, <laughs> my childhood. Clearly, I'm sorry, I didn't realize there were so many wounds there. So many, tra- so many traumas, so, so many un- unresolved traumas. Um, going back to my childhood, um, introspection. See, the Sabbath provides a lot of time for introspection. I'm not sure that we know who we are. And the truth is that we aren't one thing. We're, we're, we're engaged in a, in a constant act of becoming. So there has to be a process of introspection, but there's no time. Right. And God almighty, that we're just uh, trying to process this torrent of information that's thrown. It's amazing that we get through our days when you think about it. Between all the TV we watch, the amount of emails we have to do, the amount of text we have to respond to, social media, how we have to project so much of ourselves, including mundane activities, to our friends to just show them we still exist. And please mm-hmm. give me a little bit of attention. Otherwise, I become the proverbial uh, tree in the forest that fell and no one heard it and does it even exist, you know, etc. There has to be some time for introspection. I think the Sabbath provides that as well. After the break, Rabbi Shmuley talks about the one person that he says can unite the Jewish and Christian faiths. You've said and done a lot of things that would, I guess, you could say, shake up the Orthodox community, in, including you just went on a tour with Pamela Anderson in Australia because the two of you are collaborating on a book. Is that right? Yeah, we just on wrote a book together. Lust for Love. And you, you, you have a reputation for saying that lust is the pinnacle of holiness. Uh, you've made that argument, and you say all of the famous marriages of the Bible are lust relationships, not love relationships. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That's controversial, though. Yeah, well— I think that one of the principal differences between how Judaism looks at marriage versus how Christianity looks at marriage is that Judaism believes in lust marriages, and I think Christianity believes in love marriages. It was uh, Paul who famously said, better to marry than to burn. Now, what did he mean by that? Better to be celibate like he was or like Jesus was. But if uh, if carnal desire, if lust begins to overtake you, kill that lust by marrying. That's a fascinating thing. Get married so that you will have <laughs> not a lot of desire. Now, right. that's— we're hoping that marriage is a bit more lusty than that. 
But you're not you're not ruling out the love component. You're saying lust first and then love. No, um, we're saying that the, the two have to coexist. They're, okay, they're like the two wings of a dove. If you only have a right wing, it's going to flop on his back, or a left wing. You have to have the antithetical propulsion of, of desiring someone on the one hand to really to the, this magnetic uh, uh, pull that you have toward them with deep desire, magnetic lust, coupled, of course, with companionship and understanding and trust, and that's love, commitment. But, and commitment. But I will tell you that if you have all of those things without lust and without desire, you're, you're really incarcerated in a cage. And a I, lot of people in marriage feel that way because desire is where you want to be. Desire is where you feel pulled to something and it's, it, it's instinctual. It's very visceral. It's carnal and it should be that way. When you only, when the, the phraseology that we use in relationships today, which are all, all built around love, like best friends or companions and, it has such a casual connotation, and I, I'm looking for something that is a lot more electrifying. Remember, I'm a child of divorce, so I've been searching for the for the the means by which to keep a man and a woman happily under the same roof for the duration of their lives. What we have found in the Western world is partnership and having kids together and paying bills and shared values. None of that is very exciting to young people. Where's the desire? Where's the lust? I think if you look in the, the Ten Commandments, what is the last of the ten? It's you should not covet thy neighbor's wife, which means by direct implication, you sure as heck ought to be coveting your own. It would have said don't covet any woman. It's only your neighbor's wife you're not supposed to be lusting after. You're supposed to be lusting after your own wife. And and Judaism as a religion has unique mechanisms in marriage to make – to sustain the lust of a husband towards his wife and a wife towards her husband. Like For example, I always speak about – an iPhone, um, the most successful consumer product in the history of the world. And yet Steve Jobs was not an engineer. He dropped out of college. He went to Reed College in Oregon. He was really a marketer. And what he understood was that you could get people to lust after a telephone. You could get them to wait outside an Apple store for five hours in the scorching sun to fork over a thousand bucks for one of his telephones. The way that, I don't know, Romeo stood outside Juliet's uh, balcony, you know, to lust after a phone. And how did he do that? Three things. He made the phone unavailable. Whenever Apple introduces a new product, you simply can't buy it, and we all want what we can't have. Number two, he, he engaged in hyper-mystery when it came to Apple. They never talk about their products. It's just counter, very counterintuitive to tr- traditional methods of marketing. It's very covert. And the third thing he did is that he portrayed Apple as an upstart. Uh, think different, the famous 1984 commercial uh, during the Super Bowl. Um, and the three rules of erotic lust are unavailability, mystery, and sinfulness. So in, in the Jewish marriage, we actually have a 12-day period of sexual separation every single month. Now, that sounds onerous, and yet it creates this erotic impediment. We're supposed to have a sexual separation and a sexual barrier that we have to overcome, that we have to surmount in order to continue to desire each other. You know, Plato argued for platonic relationships that shouldn't be consummated at all. That's ridiculous. That's an endless tease. But to have a monthly tease is very critical. Because otherwise, sex becomes blasé. It becomes so predictable and routinized that it ultimately dies. You know, it's interesting because you know, I'm a marriage counselor and people come to me usually with a stated goal of increasing communication or trust or maybe they're fighting over finance or her mother or his mother is interfering in the marriage. So they'll come for one stated purpose or maybe even infidelity. And then I discover probably eight times out of ten, they're not having sex at all. It's quite remarkable. And they don't even mention that because it's not even something that they expect to continue to have. What is a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, as you would say, look like? The Bible says that sex is knowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. we can we can degrade sex and say that it's something um, pornographic. We can make some sex something very functional and just procreational. But But the Bible has no word for sex. You know, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for sex. In English, we have it. But the word in Hebrew is knowledge. And Adam came to know his wife Eve. And Abraham mm-hmm. came to know his wife Sarah. 
So how could something carnal be the highest form of knowledge? I mean, how could that supplant communication? Because sex is completely experiential and it also removes any kind of filter. There's a mm-hmm. level of knowledge that is achieved in an intimate, committed relationship. It is the soul of a marriage. Absolutely. The biggest problem in life is loneliness. And the first thing that the Bible says is bad is it is bad for man to be lonely. That is the first statement about Adam and Eve in the beginning of the book of Genesis. So sex is supposed to be the solution to loneliness, being grafted onto another person, becoming bone of one bone, flesh of one flesh. Because sex is not only uh, this, this orchestration of two halves uh, into one whole. It is also soothing. Um, it's unifying. Uh, it it purges us of so much tension and it makes us feel very focused. The distractions that men and women f- find, television, uh, l- let alone, you know, toxic distractions like uh, like pornography. You have no idea how many couples I counsel where the husband usually, he, he's, he's a porn addict and it, addiction defined as an hour a day. And, um, you know, one of the things that Pamela Anderson talks about in this book remarkably is that she's been in relationships where she's been like in lingerie waiting for her man and he'll be downstairs on a computer looking at, you know, images of other women. And that's one of the reasons that we co-authored this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about what pornography does to the male mind. She and I started up this friendship and I was amazed that in our conversations, she was so much more of a traditionalist than people expected. You know, her parents have been married for six decades. She always said she wanted the same thing. She had these very, very traditional values. And then we started writing a couple of op-eds together until it led to this book. It's beautiful, actually. Can I ask you, as a, as a marriage counselor... You have mentioned on multitude of occasions just in this podcast the pain that you are still suffering to this day from your parents' divorce. How how do you deal through those wounds that are clearly still so fresh? Even though you are a grown man, you have nine children of your own, how do you navigate that pain? For me, I think the best way is um, writing and speaking and sharing. Um, I wrote a book, for example, called uh, The Broken American Male, and it's a very raw book and uh, very personal. And it spoke to so many men. I think if you're honest about your your journey, and if you're honest about not just the faith journey, but um, an emotional journey, sometimes a journey into the, the darkness of our own experience, I think it calls out to others to be equally honest. Like The Broken American Male was all about how men today are broken because they're made to feel like they're, they're constant failures. Um, the guy that has dinner with his children, the guy that uh, uh, is faithful to his wife, uh, the man that does homework with his children, he's not celebrated. It's the guy who's on the Forbes 400 who's celebrated. It's the guy who's the, is the lead NBA scorer. But what it does to men is as they look at this definition of success, and it's a pyramid, this, I don't know, one or two percent of America's men at the top, and we keep on reading about them, Jeff, Jeff Bezos or LeBron James and uh, Donald Trump or any of the great Democratic leaders. And and the net result is the rest of us are made to feel like, wait a second, you know, I don't own some some big skyscraper. I'm not in the NBA finals. And am I valuable? Now, once upon a time, I think the definition of success was much more holistic. It wasn't so narrowly defined. Yeah, I, just in in talking with you, you're you're this great connector. Uh, you wrote a book about Jesus called Kosher Jesus. It was denounced as heresy by some in the Jewish circles. What is your take on Jesus? I know this particular book focuses on Jesus's Jewishness. Um, but what is your take on Jesus? Who was he? Um, I, I'm very proud of that book. And it made an incredible storm. It generated a storm when it first came out. So Christians look at Jesus as the divinity, as God wrapped in flesh. 
fully human, fully divine, and as the Messiah. Jews utterly reject both of those tenets. For us, the Messiah has not yet come. There's still war and strife in the world. And um, and no man can be God. No woman can be God. That's the first tenet of Judaism. So who is Jesus to us? So what I said was that in an age where Christian evangelicals have become such strong friends of Israel, and in an age where popes like Francis and Benedict mm-hmm. and especially John Paul and John the Twenty Third are reaching out to the Jewish community, we need to look at Jesus as a theological bridge between the communities, even as we understand him in vastly different ways. So Jews reject the divinity of Jesus, but we do see Jesus as a freedom fighter against Rome. In other words, many Christians think that Jesus was reforming Judaism into a new religion, Christianity. What I show in Kosher Jesus is that Jesus was really redeclaring and restating and reaffirming so many fundamental Jewish tenets. The Sermon on the Mount, which is often portrayed as this radical new vision for Christianity, is is really sourced almost word for word from the Book of Psalms, from earlier prophets. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a he was he was a teacher. He was a teacher. Mm-hmm. So he was teaching Judaism, but he was also fighting the Romans, which is why the Romans put him to death. Now, why did he hate the Romans? Because the Romans were brutally trying to suppress the practice of Judaism. The Romans wanted the emperor cult worship to be widespread in ancient Judea. They wanted the emperor Nero or or Caligula or whoever the emperors were at the time. They, there was this cult of deifying the emperor, and that was sacrilege to the Jews. So Jesus does preach against Rome, and that makes them very uncomfortable. And then he declares himself the Jewish king. Now, for us, a Jewish king is not a deity, and for us, a Jewish king is not the Messiah. He's a king. But for the Romans— that was a capital crime, and he was ultimately put to death for it. But don't you think if he's walking around saying, I'm king of the Jews, don't you – there's not a sane person that can make those and articulate those claims. Not necessarily. You're talking about a time of tremendous political upheaval in the Second Temple era when the Jews were being dominated by Rome and the Jews were tired of, of the yoke of Rome and they were looking for a leader, a king to uh, – to lead a rebellion. I mean, later there would be uh, a much more successful rebellion, 70 years after Jesus uh, was put to death, and that was the Bar Kokhba rebellion of the year 132. Mm. There were plenty of people who aspire to be the Jewish king. There were Jewish kings just before Jesus, the Hasmonean kings, but they were abolished by the Romans. So someone claiming to be the Jewish king, would, that would not have been an anomaly. That's really fascinating. I, I, haven't re- I haven't heard that perspective before. What do you think is the most beautiful thing about your faith? Um, it's focus on family and community. I think it's, that's the most beautiful thing. The Jews didn't have a homeland for 2,000 years. We were expelled by the Romans. Um, we were forcibly evicted from our land. And this is a land that was promised to us as children of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. And uh, then we experienced this terrible decimation where more than a million Jews, this is in ancient times, just imagine the numbers, were murdered and they were forced uh, around the globe, especially into Europe. And so they took a portable homeland with them. And that portable homeland was the, the family and the community. And the family table became the altar. And the community became... This, this, these borders of security that that defined your existence, having people look out for each other and sharing uh, a community of, of values, and and shared aspirations. And I think till today that the Jewish community is universally regarded around the world as having unique 
emphasis on family and community and and unique mechanisms by which to achieve healthy families and strong community. Looking back, if you had not found your faith in those moments, if you had not become a rabbi, where do you think you would be if you did not have your faith? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I'd have no guilt. <laughs> um, it's funny. I, I often ask my children that question. Like we'll sit around the Sabbath table and I said, oh, you know, I don't believe that Jewishness is an accident of birth. But I say to my kids, if you weren't born Jewish, would you have chosen it? And it becomes a fascinating knowing what you know. I feel that I would have led myself back to this path regardless because I find it almost impossible to understand who I am outside the Jewish faith. It's it's the Jewish faith that defines my relationship with God, which is so critical and vital to everything that I do. It's my Jewish faith that defines the contours of my marriage and the fact that we had nine children and Judaism's emphasis on children. It's a large family, thank God. And it's Judaism that defines – more than anything else, it defines my value system. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of repairing the world and uh, with the focus and the emphasis being a this-world orientation as opposed to an other-world orientation – we Jews aren't trying that hard to get into heaven. We hope it will happen just because we may earn it. But it, but it's not our focus. Our, our focus really is we have to cure disease in this world. We have to comfort the bereaved. We have to prolong happy life and you know just do our best. So I, I, I'm hoping that one way or another it would have, I would have been led back to this path. Rabbi Shmuley Boteach. You got it. Thank you for sharing with us your journey of faith. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. God bless. As always, a big thanks to you for listening. Make sure you're subscribed. We'd love it if you gave us a rating. A big thanks to the team at ABC Radio, Susie Liu, Lewis Millman, Mike Dubusky, Joyce Alcantara, Brianna Montalvo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kalb. I'll talk to you next week on Journeys of Faith.